Inescapably foreign. Welcome to another episode of Without Borders. I'm your host, Nolan Yuma. Today I'm here with Vira Rasafi, who has lived in six different countries and three continents as a refugee, student, volunteer, freelancer, and researcher. So, Vira, how are you doing today? Hi, Nolan. Very excited to be on your show. Uh, good. Uh, today I feel quite upbeat because I took uh, seven hours of sleep last night. My uh, newborn baby allowed us that <laughs> that uh, much sleep after a long time. So yeah, today things are good. All right. Oh, and just so the listeners know, um, where are you right now? Uh, I'm in a city called Antwerp or Antwerpen in, in Dutch in Belgium, in the Flemish part of uh, Belgium. Okay. <clears throat> and you're speaking Flemish there. Oh, yes. Uh, well, you have to. <laughs> um, well, I don't know, because I know some international companies you can get away with English, but... Well, that's, that's a very actually nice topic to um, discuss the nuances there, because, you know, if I was an expat in, in Belgium, uh, or I, when I was a student even uh, in Belgium, uh, I didn't feel the need to, to learn Dutch, not at all. Uh, I, as I know, lots of expats, they, they live here for 20 years and they, they even don't bother. But uh, the moment that you become a refugee, uh, you have kind of this uh, uh, social and official, of course, expectation for you to definitely learn the Dutch. And uh, it's not bad at all. Eh? There are some... Some nuances that I would like to address maybe uh, maybe sometime later. But uh, yeah, uh, the first two years, I definitely had this mental resistance to learn Dutch. Uh, but then eventually it happened and I'm happy that I learned it. It's another language. It's um, it's actually beautiful if you get to, to know the grammar in a sense that where the words coming from. And I have... Lots of friends that are, uh, yeah, into literature, and every time they say something like some 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 words that are very nice to 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 the ear, and they, they, it's it's good to know the meaning. It really makes me happy to know that like ah, I know this. So, yeah, yeah, I yeah. understand because there are some words in Flemish that you can't translate into English as well, but. Let's get into Belgium a little bit later. I think it'd be good to start closer to the beginning. Um, and also, just so listeners know, if you've listened to the show, or especially if you've read my writing, I can be quite politically correct and blunt with my opinions. Uh, today, <clears throat> I won't be doing that on certain topics, just because there are political sensitivities that I have to be aware of. And I just, just want the listeners to know that. Um, <clears throat> but Vita. You came to Belgium in 2013, so we'll get there a little later. And you were born in uh, 1983 in Mash Mashhad, um, Iran, right? Correct, correct. Or I Iran, maybe as the American. Well, uh, you can be American or or English, and and uh, you can uh, you can say either of those, Iran or Iran, as long as you don't confuse it with Iraq or Iraq. So yeah, so. Of course, I think most of the listeners on this show understand the differences, but of course there there are many people and even even people who don't who know the differences 
Middle East kind of gets thrown around as a blanket term sometimes, even though there are so many rich cultural differences. Um, and of course, there are big differences between Iran and Iraq, uh, maybe in some cases politically not, um, but culturally. So uh, I'm just curious what life was like in Mashhad. Um, or maybe if you want to tell the listeners a little bit more about what makes um, Iran or Iran stand out from from some of its surrounding countries. Interesting. Yes. Uh, so um, you can look at my uh, my life. The first 17 years in Mashhad. Uh, Mashhad is a eastern city in one of the provinces, the eastern provinces in Iran. Iran. Um, to just give you a mental image is situated between, you know, you have the Caspian Sea on the north and Persian Gulf on the south. And then on the west and east, you have, you, we share borders with different countries, including Afghanistan and Pakistan. And then we have Iraq and Turkey and Azerbaijan on on the west. Uh, so you can, yeah, I, I can tell you a lot about my first 17 years in Mashhad as a girl, as uh, as the fifth child from six uh, children in a big family. Uh, but to just, you know, make it short, I only remember noise and, and fights and, and, and chaos and... Uh, but that was very one-dimensional dimensional life of me back then because uh, when I left uh, Mashhad to university to study physics at the age of 18, uh, it was my conscious choice to be far from home, even though I could choose for a university which was in Mashhad and one of the good universities, but I wanted to go far I wanted to get out of the house and then actually I realized that whoo there are so many other dimensions to me and I'm so happy for all those uh, you know being far from home so I was never like this student who goes every month back home and no I I, I would go back home for two times a year just you know because I had to it was summer vacation and it was too long and or it was the new year, I, you had to be, you know, with your parents. It sounds like even before traveling to all these different countries you went, you we were almost bored a world citizen. Like you kind of just were bored with this drive to explore the world. Is that true? Somehow, uh, unconsciously, yes. But the, the, the way that I look at it is because, you know, one thing about, uh, you know, my big family, it came with lots of chaos and, and, and headaches, but few good things also came, which I'm very grateful for my parents for all those good things, um, few things actually. Uh, and one of those was uh, the fact that we had this big library at home, like the, the shelves book um, uh, full, with, um, full of books and from everywhere, like from uh, literatures from west to east to to history to to uh, romance and novels and um, poems and everything. And uh, since I was that maybe geeky girl, uh, 
one way for me to escape the chaos from my 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 home at home actually it was to seek refuge in books and i from really very early on i got to know like to to know the world beyond my home my hometown and my country and one of the very very um uh, influencing books that actually set the path for me to be here right now at this moment and i'm very happy about it was a um, book that my mom actually bought it for me it was the biography of albert schweitzer and uh, albert schweitzer with his mission to africa you know as a, as a doctor and uh, leaving this missionary act you know because back then many western europeans actually went to back to africa just for the missionary reasons uh, to spread you know um, christianity but he decided uh at the age of uh early uh, before 30 he he made a vow to himself and he said uh i'm going to study uh medicine and i'm going back to africa to help those people for real so he did that and and he went yeah you know as as a 13 years old when you read that 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 story and um I, I Just to had... provide some context for the listeners, because maybe not everyone knows who Albert uh, Schweitzer is. So Albert Schweitzer, <clears throat> that you to describe is some of his time in Africa, but he was a uh, theologian, uh, organist, uh, writer, humanitarian, philosopher, and yeah, physician, a doctor. Um, <clears throat> and just so people get a, an idea of the time period, uh, I think it was 19, yeah, 1952, he received the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, for his philosophy of <clears throat> reference for life. Um, and I'm just wondering, I, I can describe what reference of life is, but was there any connection with the book that you read and uh, reference for life as well? Uh, not really. Um, the only thing that I know that the, the lady who um, interviewed Albert Schweitzer at his quite uh, late ages, actually, uh, uh she she had this book actually written for not for um let's say it was a very simple narrative of what Albert Schweitzer achieved and what what his mission was so uh also uh, maybe funny to mention that uh in 2000 wait uh, 2013 uh, 20 years later by accident i visited the hometown of albert schweitzer uh, the kaisenberg and on the way to to the alps and i visited the museum house of him and then there i could actually see all the works and all the yeah like uh, the reference to life you know all the all the um how do you say uh, the credentials that he got and and so there actually i came to know more about him but as a 13 years old that book gave me only this mental image that oh i want to go to africa and uh i'm not very proud of this 
you know, it's been some time that I haven't been proud of this, but back then I had this idea to save Africans, African kids. And um, I tell you maybe later why I'm not proud of this uh, anymore. But, you know, the, the seed was already planted in my head. I could imagine beyond my hometown. And that is the influence that, you know, those books actually uh, had on me. So in a sense, I wasn't born that way. But mm -hmm. thanks to those books in our home, um, yeah. Well, it's it's. Uh, I'm now. I'm really curious why you're not proud of it because I'm just. I'm thinking about his work and his philosophies around life. It's all around res respecting everyone, and he talks a lot about you know how every living thing has a drive to keep on living, and that kind of connects us all in ways, and um, that we should all see each other as brothers and sisters, and and care and respect for one in uh, one of us one another, um, which obviously in return made him one of the people back then who was very outspoken against colonialism. Uh, so a lot of positive things there, a lot of good reasons to motivate you to go to Africa. Uh, so yeah, so what, what was it that you don't feel proud of now? Uh, well, you're uh, getting into this quite early, but uh, let's say, you see, so um, I, I need to give, I mean, there's a little of chronology in between. So I studied physics and then I, uh, when I finished my studies the last year, I decided instead of going for a career in physics, um, I'm going to study sociology. I, I always found my passion and interest in that field, uh, which actually uh, made me face a quite a resistance from my parents' side, you know, in Iran. Uh, like in many Eastern societies, social sciences are not associated with uh, high IQ <laughs> or, or in any, you know, like lazy students go to social sciences. Uh, and I was a physics student and, you know, physics is the top of the science. And for them, it was very difficult to give up that career and then and, and go to sociology. But I was very adamant about it. I proved them that I'm serious because they, they, they really thought I'm not that serious about it. But then I remember myself telling myself that, you know, Vida, I can have a career. I can earn an income in physics, of course. Uh, but my passion is in social sciences. And I, I have something to say in physics, maybe in a few years, but I have more to say in sociology. And that, that was my um, derive to really pursue my, my decision. And I have no, no, no regret whatsoever from that decision, it, even though it was not an easy um, path. But then... Going back to Africa from that 13 years old, Nolan, uh, it was forgotten. You know, I I never actually consciously was uh, planning for going to Africa. And in um, 2008, uh, I remember that uh, I was working with a think tank, uh, a European think tank, uh, to somehow you know or covered the chapter of human rights in iran and through this medium of internet and and think tank and getting to know 
the opportunities because I kept reading about these uh, volunteers who go, you know, American, uh, uh, like fresh students, uh, they go go to, to, to uh, Africa or Latin America to do some volunteer work. And up to that moment, I never planned or I never even, I, I have forgotten about, you know, my, my dream about going to Africa. But once this opportunity came, I mean, showed him itself to me, and I, I was like, I, 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 I remember that I was not even sure. I just thought it's, it's a, you know, it's, um, it's a shoot in the dark. Uh, but then when it got real and I could get this um, opportunity, um, I should explain that also that it was. Uh, you know, to, to become a f volunteer in an uh, orphanage uh, house uh, in, in Kenya, in Nairobi. Actually, there is this concept of uh, Thomas Bernardo House. It's a very British concept of orphanages. Like, instead of just putting all the children together in a one big dorm, they build up cottages, like real houses. And they put four, five, six children together with one mama. This mama is also a staff of the of the of of the orphanage, and so the children actually were sisters and brothers, and they had home. So when they go to school and they come back, you know, to the campus, to that big campus, they go to their home, and the mama during the day cooks for them, wash their, uh, you know, do the laundry, and so it's a very um, home concept kind of orphanage. Anyway, I got the chance to to uh, to to do that, and I and I am. Um, so that was my ticket to Africa, and I remember. Then I built up uh, some networks. I could uh, uh, search for more jobs, and as a junior researcher, sociology was my field, and I got lucky. But then, why I'm not proud of that? Because the idea, just imagine how arrogant I was to think that I have this solution or I have this uh, tool that I can help, you know, and I'm here to help people because they're not able to help themselves. It took me four years to realize that arrogance in me because the Africa that I knew before I go there, it was just my, you know, imagination or my, my idea of Africa and all the things that normally it's projected in, in media for it, you know, like, you know, um, it was very different from the Africa that I uh, got to 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 know and all those people brilliant hardworking and um, and expert enough like you know because you know Nolan let's face it uh, let's just be uh, honest with each other that yeah. as as a white person, and I'm not white, I'm I'm yellow. I don't want to get into shadism, but but it is true. I'm 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 yellow. But in the context of Africa, uh, 
I didn't deserve that prestige or privilege. There are many people who could do a better job than me. And, and I How, had Do you think really... this, this privilege you received, uh, what was it from the organization that kind of put you on this pedestal because of the color of your skin or because of your educational background? Or were it the people there that kind of put you in onto this pedestal? Well, it's interesting that you uh, you mentioned this because then we can really uh, explain it uh, well. That indeed it was not the organization. It you know, uh, being white, being bright uh, is associated with pureness, with 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 knowledge, with uh, being smart, being knowing, being ethical, even. So you somehow in that context, you are immediately appreciated multiple times than, than, than the rest. And I had somehow ethical issue with, with, with that, um, attitude, with that mentality. Uh, I'll give you another example. Like I remember I traveled to India just as tourist and in one of the tourist sites, I, I saw this family and they, they wanted to take a picture with me. I was nobody. I was nobody. And that really made me sad. Just because of the color of the skin, you are somehow becoming superior and, and desired. And, and I have... I still have that 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 issue with 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 this mentality. And um, funny enough, so in Africa, when uh, people meet me, like um, <laughs> it's it's very interesting. When you know when we we start talking, first they take me as a, as a Western, like American or European, and they ask me where are you coming from, and I say I'm from Iran, and um, without exception. <laughs> Without exception, every time that I mention my nationality, I immediately um, uh, noticed a change in the attitude. Yeah, because from the expectation that I was a Western American and the the you know the privilege that I could own with that with that um, perception or the fact, actually, I I am now. No, you know, that is, yeah. that is the annoying thing that really bothered me. Not because I was disappointed in their, how they treated me afterwards, but that, that I, I found it very sad that our societies and I come from Iran, we lived with social status. We, we live with the fact that we are not a class society. I mean, class like, um sorry, cat society, but our societies are very much um, classified in a hierarchical in a sense that how you socially um, deserve treatments based on the social status that you have. And but these are maybe, you know, the fact that I'm not proud of the fact that I was arrogant enough to think that I am the one who saves Africa. And then afterwards I realized that, wow, these, uh, locals, they, 
they know better than they have this tacit knowledge of how to deal with and, and nowadays there are so many uh, Africans who come to West they get educated they get all the technic technicalities and expertise and they go back we don't need yellows and whites you know to come and you know rescue or, or solve the problems uh, of course. in that sense yeah I'm, I'm getting a bit further from uh no, no, we'll just bring it back because as you said, we kind of jumped ahead with the chronology here. But sometimes when we have certain themes, those themes don't uh, sit in one time and place, right? We kind of have to jump around. Um, but then just to bring it back a little bit with um, the idea of growing up in a society where there there is a hierarchy. Um, of course, in Belgium, it exists much less than in Iran, right? Um, and... How was it for you just be, you said you were the fifth child? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you also fell somewhere on a hierarchy within Absolutely. family, right? Uh, so I'm, I'm a little bit curious about that because I'm sure a lot of Westerners, uh, when when they think about when you were born, it, it doesn't have as much of an effect on how you're raised. But in many countries in Iran, in China as well, um, it, it really affects your role right. in the family and what you need to do. So I was kind of, what was your role as the fifth child? Oh, uh, you need to see that in the light of, you know, you're the fifth child. So you have four um, siblings older than you and you're also a girl. Uh, so we were two, two, um, four girls and two, two boys. And, uh, unfortunately that, that division, uh, well, my brothers enjoyed much privilege and much, much freedom compared to us as, as, as girls. And that, that always bothered me too, you know, uh, and then you have as a fifth child, I'm, I'm also into the psychology of number of children, um, because apparently it has big effect on your character and personality and uh, which uh, which number you are in in how many uh children and i had this um younger sister than me four years and uh when i look back i realized that um yeah i was this unseen unheard uh child even though, even though I should, I should admit that because of my look and my good grades and I was this good student, I was seen more than my other sibling in a sense. Okay. But I but that kind of but... breaks the general norm behind that though. Like normally, would you be less seen as a fifth child in Iran? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You're okay. lost child. I mean, they say fifth child... We've been six as a lost child. <laughs> so, so, somehow I, I, I got found again. But in a sense, no, yeah. You know, this, you are lost in a family of eight, you know, like uh, you, you definitely, because your parents don't have the time or energy to even listen to you or to see you to, or notice you. It's just... And impossible, you know, physically and mentally. So I was mostly um, in contact with my, let's say, my older um, sister, and she, she, she still has this mother kind of 
feeling towards me because when when she was seven, I was born. So when I was I don't know four or something, she was eleven. And she was into this, you know, mother role playing, like you know, playing house, you know, with your real real sister, and um, she still has that 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 feeling towards me, and I. I, I think she expects some sort of loyalty from me because back then she, uh, she yeah, mothered me somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think there are pros and cons when having a society that is more has more of a hierarchy and then societies that have more equal. You can also look at power distance in these cases, right? In business structures, which cultures might have greater power distance and which have lesser power distance. Now, you've lived in so many countries, uh, so you've obviously had to ex had to deal with these different ways of negotiating these different power distances. So I'm kind of wondering, from your experience, which countries had the largest power dis um, distance and which had the smallest? Because I know it can often lead to conflicts, right? For instance, if someone from a Scandinavian country or like Holland where there is no power distance, right? Where you, the, the person who's several degrees down can have a meeting with the CEO and email them directly, no problem, right? And that sounds all well and good, but then sometimes when these people from very like this equal or small power distance society go to work somewhere where there is more of a hierarchy, then those leaders might seem very incompetent because they're not showing that they're the leader, right? And then the people just feel like, okay, why isn't my boss telling me what to do? Why am I, why am I not getting clear instructions, right? So there, there's a balance there. So it's, yeah, what, what are some of your experiences? That's absolutely true, Nolan. And I have experienced this, what, what you just mentioned, it's what I've experienced throughout these years, this disparities between how I, I'm talking about the workspace because you gave an example about work but that's true um to to answer your first question the least uh, among the countries that i lived in the least uh was for me indeed uh belgium uh germany i didn't have real working experience there it was um mostly um yeah, entrepreneurial. So it's different from working for an organization. But Belgium, definitely. Although, although I should mention that uh, you have always these outliers that they, you know, so we are talking about average. We are talking about 68% of the population, which indeed in Belgium, you don't have that. You can, you can just call or address your 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 boss with their small to their um, uh, first name and and it's perfectly fine they actually prefer that they you go to africa you go to iran and and then the, 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 yeah address them with their first name you will be doomed i mean they immediately get offended by that and it was I, africa many african countries was it similar to an Iran with the power distance and hierarchy or lesser? Yes, yes, yes. Because we, all of them are very uh, masculine societies in a sense. And um, this masculinity actually is, uh, brings its own power dynamic between. And at the same time, it's very um, respect based. 
in a society, you know, where respect gets suddenly this very important uh, value in the relationships that I'm older than you, you need to respect me. I am a man, you need to respect me. So it can go in all, all, um, all uh, directions. Uh, in Iran, um, hierarchy, you know, because in Iran, you get treated based on the social status that you have. And um, it's, it's just that you, you, after some times, because you get treated very unfairly uh, based on, you know, if you're not rich, if you're not a doctor, if you're not uh, someone important, then you start focusing on how you represent yourself to earn that good treatment. So you have normally in Eastern, you know, in Iran, we have this, um, um, imagine a context that you inside your house can, can do something that outside is not allowed mm -hmm. inside your house perfectly. Yeah. You can, but outside you are not allowed. And then you start developing this um, distinction between am I inside or am I outside? How should I represent my, my... So you get self-conscious when you are outside of the house. So you have like an inside personality and an outside personality. Absolutely. Like, uh, you know, it's like you, you have to be constantly cautious outside that am I... You know, am I confirming what others expect me to um, to be or to do? And that is um, oh tiring. That's really tiring. These things I I realized when I was uh, out of Iran, of course. When you're in the system, you somehow know it, but you don't really. You're not aware of it. You're not con conscious of it. So, mm -hmm. but. The moment that you take distance, enough distance from that society, out of the system, that you're able to see the system. So, whew, that was, yeah. you know, especially in, in the reference to another culture, which is a bit, you know, contrasting or, or different. But then, yeah, uh, hierarchy, I, I experienced it in Africa a lot. I remember uh, I, I was giving a workshop and... Uh, in that workshop, there were men uh, much older than me, women older than me. And uh, I normally, uh, well, I normally look much younger than my, my real age. On top of that, put me in a context where I'm a girl who is perceived as a little girl and standing in front of all this, you know, men and and much older than me and i immediately noticed that they are not going to listen to me uh it was a very obvious like uh legitimacy issue that you're not legit legitimate enough to to stand here because you're much younger and than was that in girl? all the african countries because of course i mean africa has the most languages out of any continent, right? And just so many rich cultures that are very distinct. So did, did you notice any differences with how the men um, were valued in society or how the men treated you uh, from the different countries that you lived in? 
in Africa? Uh, well, I, sh- I should only talk about the African countries where I lived. It was mostly Eastern, Eastern uh, Africa, uh, like uh, Kenya, Zambia, and Ethiopia. Um, but I can say in terms of how I was treated by, you know, these gender roles, um, it's difficult, Nolan. You know why? Because at the same time, I had this liar on top of me as an expat with a brighter color, you know? So it's difficult to really know that was it because of, you know, if you get the same treatment as an, a, a girl with a similar, similar, um, let's say, situation. Uh, but there were moments that I definitely knew that is because, you know, it was because I was a girl and I was young. So this concept of respect in, in our countries and in African countries where I experienced played a big role in, yeah, relationships that you had with, uh, with, with your coworkers or, or the people that you work with. I'm trying to think a bit harder and see if there was an, yeah, um, like I always Did you feel like your experiences were quite similar in all, in all three of those countries? When, when it comes of, to how you were treated as a woman? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, what comes to my mind is maybe it's good for your listeners to know that I'm very much annoying in answering questions in a very straightforward way because there's a context to it. You know, this intersectionality of you, you know, you have your gender, you have your social status, you have the color of your skin, you have your, you know, which we would say race, let's say here, uh, you have your uh, career, your work, you know, your the, the position you're, you're standing. All these shape the expectations of people from me and the perception, their perception as well. And then in return, I get how they treat me. Was I, if there was an African girl, exactly the same as me, same education, same social class, same, but with a different shade of skin, would we be treated equally? That I doubt. We couldn't really do justice to, to the, yeah, I was just wondering about your personal experience. I just brought up being a woman because you, you were you were talking about that earlier. But now you bring up something interesting and I've, I've just noticed it so far in our conversation. You do provide a lot of context, which is also a, a cultural thing, right? I think uh, a lot of Westerners, when they're talking to people from the East, they might be thinking, why are you getting to the point? Like, this is this is not the question I asked. And then on the flip side, you have people from the East with Westerners and they think these Westerners suck at listening. Why aren't they taking time to listen to the context? Because you can't, you can't understand the point without the context. Um, How has that been for you in Belgium? Do you feel like people aren't listening to you sometimes when you have a presentation or have you had to adapt your presentation style to get to the point quicker? 
Wow. And, uh, ouch. Because that, that. No, really not, not ouch. Like, I, I, I think, I think it's a amazing. good to provide context, right? It just depends, amazing. depends on the culture. And this is without borders, right? So I love to have people who, you know, as a Westerner, I just get right to the point. And of course, there are variations in the West as well, right? Like in, I know in Germany, if you have a presentation, people expect a lot more about theory first and then the principles. Whereas in America, it's like principles first and then theory, right? So it's not, it's not just the West or the East. It can depend on each country. But I'm just wondering about your experience. No, no, no. It's, it's like. really amazing that how you put it that way because um, I didn't know that's a thing. I, I really thought it's it's me with my very complicated and complex way of looking at things. But I didn't know there's a cultural uh, factor in that. And oh, yeah, definitely. very interesting, very interesting. And uh, I said, ouch. Why? Because it reminded me all of all those moments that I was trying so hard during a workshop, for example, to just, you know, uh, get into the point with context. Because when you put people in the context, and, 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 and my workshops also are not that, you know, like pure technical or scientific is mostly about issues where not do you know if if you don't provide a nuanced answer you could be easily wrong so in that sense when uh, it's it's funny because multiple times i've i've, I've explained like i i got a question from the crowd and then i explained it for like 10 minutes and then this this guy uh, stands up says yeah but Okay, you didn't answer my question. I said, I was answering your questions. And, and just, you know, um, I have that issue at home too with my, with my husband. My husband is Belgian and it's really interesting. In the beginning, we, we end up just not having a conversation, just avoid the fact that when he asks me a question, I have to give all this background, you know, and context. And he would get, I, I think he, he easily got bored with it and said, hey, but you didn't answer my question. <laughs> so it's, I, I, I definitely need to look that up because I didn't know it's a cultural thing. But I think, I think it's always very important for people to be aware of it because that's sometimes a problem in our world. People think like, okay, why isn't Vita getting to the point? And then they blame you as a person. But then once they understand, okay, no, it's a little bit more of a cultural thing. And you realize, okay, no. I'm the one who needs to be a better listener right now and take the time to understand the context rather than just like need to get the point right away. But then on the flip side, it, like someone from the East going to the West needs to realize, okay, I, I don't need all the context right now. I need to let this guy just say yeah, the points and maybe exactly. later provide the context. Yeah, exactly. I think um, as long as the communication is clear, um, there is no hard feelings because, yeah, who knows? Uh, now, I do think we have quite a bit of context now from some of your experiences. Um, and you mentioned that when you were working as a freelancer in uh, Kenya and Zambia and Ethiopia, that you were using the ICT4D methods, right? And I know these, these methods are to help bridge the digital divide to help marginalize people in developing countries. Um, now, I know this is many years later after you were there, but I'm just wondering what your opinions are about 
like Elon Musk's Starlink, do you think that's doing anything to bridge the divide or is it just another business thing? Does it follow the ICT4D methods at all? Or it, or like Elon Musk's Starlink or Mark Zuckerberg's plan to give free internet access to many countries that don't have access of it. Um, you know, this is definitely a, uh, what's it called, freemium model or whatever, right? You get something for free, but then they take your data and sell it. Uh, so oh, I'm just curious what the word for it. About it I just, all right. That's, that, 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 that's definitely uh, interesting. Uh, no one. Um, the value of ICT for development tools, eh, like uh, uh, from a very simple, uh, not even a smartphone back then, because, yeah, not everyone in Africa, even, I mean, I'm talking about, but I should be careful because it's been since 2016, I haven't been back. So I, I'm sure like many other countries, uh, Africa, African countries have been made progress in many, many senses. Mm -hmm. uh, back then, even a very dumb phone could do a lot to a family. Um, uh, in terms of their, uh, yeah, let's say, uh, the crops that they were going to, uh, to, uh, have that year or the, the year later, or, um, uh, from, uh, even, uh, let's say this, uh, credits, like they could just send each other credit instead of carrying cash, which was very risky thing. Um, and, uh, so many other examples, um. I, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, uh, this, um, this, you know, I, I'm very pessimist and that's my personal opinion. I could be wrong, but I'm very pessimist to this capitalist models of, um, um, aid in a sense that, uh, they always start with something for your own benefit for, 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 uh, for, um, social and 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 you know impact uh, social value and, and and impact and blah 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 but um, at the end you see that it's going to make the rich richer and most of the issues that we are facing in our global society right now they are not they're actually it's because the rich got rich exploiting those countries at the first place so in a sense, uh, ICT4D doesn't have to be, these tools, they don't have to be very elaborated, very, very uh, complicated tools, digital tools. No, uh, simple things would do wonder. And I'm sure African people with their own uh, tacit knowledge, they are best at exploiting and, 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 and actually employing those tools, simple tools for their benefits um but i personally believe at this age this era internet should be a basic human right uh, that's what mark zuckerberg says <laughs> well yes but yeah it could be my bias but something that comes you know things good things are said by so many people but i always think twice if it comes from the mouth of a capitalist and that's my personal, because yeah, um, it should be the right, but 
um, I give you a, an anecdote. Uh, we have people, these um, field workers who come to the door and they work for a big uh, humanitarian organizations, the international organizations, charity organizations, and they collect money uh, like, uh, like, yeah, okay, we, we are going to uh, sponsor this uh, packet of food for the babies in Africa and it will save um, lives. And they want me as a middle class uh, uh, citizen to donate 15 euro per month to this organization. I have no objection to charity work and donations. Um, there are a couple of these organizations who actually, they do great work and they make impact. But then I questioned uh, these field workers, you know, because they are young and they are students and they, you know, they sometimes have no idea. They think they are doing great thing. I would say, how much in total yearly you need? And they say, yeah, only 30,000 euro. I said, you know what, instead of just going door to door and facing all these people who tell you, no, I'm not interested. Just go to three top men of your organization. And I'm not going to name them, <laughs> but, and ask them for not even one full salary, just half of the monthly salary that they, and they have it, believe me. So it's not about the money. Uh, and I know that getting engaged in, in charity work is a good thing for a citizen. It's, you know, it's something that I advocate, but not every organization um, is up to the standards, first of all. And second of all, it's, it's been very difficult to follow up on, on your money. And where does it go? How many percent of the money that you donate, it really goes to that child because we know, and that's another frustration that I had from my working in, in Africa, that I observed that how many expats live lavish lives, very, very, you know, villas with pools, two cars, uh, multiple travels, uh, you know, trips back to home and blanco check just to furnish their houses. And yeah. these were and sometimes the people the who live like that, it's not just um, from charity or private organizations. It's also the flip side, like if people who, you know, they're they're anti the capitalist organizations and they're like, oh, I'm going to work for the government. But then the government does the exact same thing. And then they live with this government funding and they also live in a nice house, two cars. So, you know, it. <laughs> yes. So you see, yeah. that's the thing. That's the frustration that I had that, OK, um, I, you know, like a uh, development sector, in a sense, you know, it was a big job market for Western people. And if you look at it, I mean, and okay, 50 years ago, maybe you could justify that with, you know, saying that I African people are not educated, but come on. I mean, 60, 70 years later, we know that, I mean, first of all, education is one aspect, second of all. They are so competent, so highly qualified to take ownership of their own issues. Just mm -hmm. leave the country's be, please. Mm -hmm. You know, so in a sense, I'm very, very frustrated and disappointed in the development sector. And that was the reason that I decided not to go back. Um, and uh, yeah. Now, 
before we get to where you are now with your work, um, I am curious a little bit more about your immigration stories because it's something that I always bring up on the show because I hate bureaucracy, <laughs> especially in the immigration. Uh, of course, bureaucracy, I understand that it's necessary, right? We do need this in our world. But I find the bureaucratic process so archaic and every person I've had on the show, every person I meet, always has some story where it's just horrendous and I don't know what it is about the immigration immigration side of bureaucracy but it seems to attract I'll just be straight up lazy sadistic people now if you're a bureaucrat listening to this I am sorry I'm sure there are many wonderful people out there as well but on average I have heard horror stories um and this needs to change I mean I can look at my phone and it knows where I'm bored, it knows my heart rate, it knows every little thing about me, yet for me to go to a different country, I have to get all these papers, I have to sign it in the right spot, if it's signed outside of the line, I get rejected, I have to wait another six months, pay even more money, and it's just like, it's just hell to me, and it doesn't make any sense. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my little tension. I feel you, I feel you Nola, uh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you talk about, you know, I, I have experienced so much power, uh, power play when you go to an immigration office. I don't know what it is, but it's just, you are in this position of, you know, like you don't even dare to question a certain certain uh, type of work or attitude because you you know that your papers in the hand of this person um not just your papers just, your life right <laughs> yeah yeah true yeah indeed huh? yeah it's true but uh it's it's also and at the same time you know that if you want to play dirty like you can easily bribe and you get your your file on top of the top of the uh, pile and 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 yeah um i mean not in europe of course but uh but in other countries it's it's very common so you get outraged for being ethical and still being the, at the end of the line because someone else could just you know bribe the officer with with you know in the in the in the light of the day not even not even you know so um it's it's a mixed thing my immigration you know in africa for me, as an expat, uh, was very. I mean, this the whole experience was great. Uh, I was really doing my the work of my passion. A layer uh, lower, I had these uh, ethical and moral uh, doubts and questions. Like because the more that I I saw things, the the more pessimistic that I became and then I started to question uh, things. And the third layer was, you know, as a sociologist, you always have these eyes which observe, this mind which look is looking for the patterns. And African countries, they remind me a lot of Iran that you had to play along any power play just to you know get the work done and mm -hmm. i said yeah what's the point I, I i left that country you know 
for that reason. And I'm experienced here again. No, so, sometimes from my experience too, like <laughs> with some of those developing nations, uh, like I've only traveled, but I still needed a visa. And <laughs> I know it's kind of bad to say, but the corruption can almost be a little bit more enjoyable in the bureaucratic process. But it's like, whoa, 20 euros and I can all of a sudden get my visa. Oh, 20 euros. I could pay off this cough and I can skip the line. This is awesome. I can't do this in Spain. I can't do this in Canada. In Canada, I'm forced to wait six months. <laughs> yes. That, you just said 20 euros. Exactly. Like I remember in Ethiopia, in the, in the airport itself, I remember that if you, if you pay $20, you could just, you know, go in another line and it, it was faster. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, I didn't pull that number out of my ass. <laughs> no, that's no, seriously, that's just and, and another well, that's a forty euro forty dollars story that I have like in the well, that's another another story that at the national park in Nairobi in, in Kenya, um uh I well at the gate we were offered twenty euro twenty dollars discount. So the ticket was forty dollars. And we were offered that if you pay, you can pay $20, but no receipt. You, you receive your, no receipts. So in a sense that $20 goes to the gate man, the, the ticket officer. And, and I, I save also, you know, $20. And either you, are, you pay $40 and you get the ticket. And the other, the poor gate, guy, uh, gate the, the watchman or the, the ticket officer doesn't get any. So you suddenly face uh this ethical dilemma that oh yeah. okay do i pay okay let's say saving 20 dollars for you is not at all a question you say no i don't mind 20 dollars you know but then it's not about you saving 20 dollars but you know that if you don't you know uh-huh don't agree with the bribe that officer is not going to get any money and at the same time this 40 dollars goes to the Ken kenyan government which is corrupt in a sense yeah so you have and to then also it's if everyone who can afford it does it though then the people who can't afford it keep getting pushed further and further back that's another and indeed I, I i didn't think of that liar yeah but indeed that's another also uh consideration the ethical consideration that comes to mind so what would you do and uh, so it's not always that straightforward to be uh, to enjoy a kind of a corrupt uh, situation because then you have to really um, think hard and say, am I standing by my principle or this poor guy that $20 could be the education fee for, you know, his son, you know? Yeah. Here, Vida. Um, we're coming up on an hour now. I would love to keep talking. So we can end this episode here because in the next episode, I want to start talking about another type of immigration process because right now we're discussing, even though with corruption a little bit involved, we're, we're discussing both our immigration experiences from kind of a privileged background, right? The fact that we can pay the $20. Also, just living as an expat in general is it has some privilege to it. 
So we're going to end the episode here. And then next week, I'll release the new one. And we'll talk a little bit more about what it was like for you immigrating as a refugee, which of course was quite different. So remember, this was Without Borders. Uh, please go to www.withoutborders.fyi to access the transcript. And please tune in next week.